Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. So Khadija, what are we talking about today? Today we're, ha- we're going to talk about uh, telepsychiatry. Um, telemedicine and telepsychiatry has been around for decades, largely used to provide access to care to those who are in rural area- areas and underserved areas. Despite the capacity to carry out these services virtually, most visits have been done in person until now. With COVID-19, the entire landscape has changed. Similar to how schools and colleges suddenly pushed kids into remote learning in March, the pandemic also abruptly thrusted us in medicine into the virtual realm, a move which was really protective for both the providers and the patients. COVID-19 has taken a tremendous toll on not just the physical well-being, but also the mental health of many. Rates of depression and anxiety are rising, and more than ever, it's critical for families to have a way to initiate new services and also to continue already established care. Telepsychiatry has really taken off. It's been likened to the old school house calls as mental health providers are literally in the homes of children and adolescents. Today, we'll talk about how this transition has been playing out for families and clinicians, including the pros and cons, cautions and considerations for telepsychiatry after COVID. So uh, I'd like to introduce our, um, our guest today, who's an old friend, Jana Wozniak is Associate Chief for Quality and Safety for the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's also a Director of our Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Outpatient Clinic, and she does a lot of other things. Um, she's an international expert in bipolar disorder, she's a great clinician, and she certainly knows a ton about this area. And we invited her because if anybody knows something about the nuts and bolts, of telepsychiatry, it's Janet. So Janet, welcome. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much. And I'm happy to be here to talk about uh, telepsychiatry and virtual visits, which is something I've actually been involved in since 2014. And it's a kind of a little known fact that the first clinician to patient virtual visits, like video synchronous visits, were done in child psychiatry. In fact, my colleague, Dr. Uh, Joshi did the very first one, then I did the next 10. <laughs> and so I started, he, he paved the way, then we expanded it to other members of our department. So this was way back in 2014. And I still remember it was like a big, big deal that we had a three month goal to get 10 visits done. Um, and we uh, had all these different obstacles to overcome, thinking about documentation and thinking about the patient experience and consent and thinking about um, the technology that we would use. Um, and it's um, interesting that in just this past March, overnight, we converted from doing about 5% of all of our visits to 97% of all of our visits um, via telepsychiatry. Wow. So it's really, it's really been fun to watch it all happen over the years. But after a kind of like plodding along from 2014, it took this public health emergency to to really transform care. Well, I, we're going to hear a lot more about telepsychiatry and its future. Uh, but before we do, let's let's start with um, how is how has this week been for everybody? Khadija, how's this week been for you? This has been a week that has been stressful, I think, and stressful because of all of the commotion going on at the Capitol so much of the uncertainty. So the best way I can describe it is really stressful. How about you? 
uh, Janet, how's this week been for you? It's, uh, it's, it's one for the history books. I feel like uh, week after week, I'm collecting information that I'm going to tell our, my wide-eyed grandchildren about the strange times that we're living in. Um, I would say that it's actually alarming in an alarming week. That's, that's true. We are collecting, it seems like every day, new, new tidbits that you're just like, this is surreal. This is surreal. Hopefully nobody will believe it. They'll say, how could that possibly have been? <laughs> Jean, how about you? How was it for you? Well, how could, I, how could I say anything different? Except, you know, we've said this before. We've said this about the pandemic. And I think the same thing is true for the events that we've seen uh, in Washington. And over the last four years, um, I don't, I think we've, there's a silver lining, I think, to something like this. I mean, when have we ever in previous years talked about racism or microaggressions or harassment of women or, um, or insurgencies? Um, and they've been part of the history of our country. So as shocked and horrified as I've been to see what's going on, the good news is that maybe this is something that is going to open our eyes just as the Black Lives Matter movement has been um, and hashtag Me Too and the various other things that we've, that we've been seeing. Um, because as we've said before, you know, um, and we'll hear this about telepsychiatry. Um, uh, out of out of the ashes rises the phoenix. Out of adversity comes things that we would never have expected. So that's mm -hmm. trying to shed a positive light on a horrifying week. Yeah, I think there there were lots of teachable moments over the course of these past what eight nine months or so, especially based on what happened the other day at the Capitol. So, so Janet, thank you again for joining us. And we are ready to dive into this discussion about the nuts and bolts of telepsychiatry. So to start, can you just tell us a little bit about what is telepsychiatry and how it was used, was used before COVID and, and how it's used now? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Telepsychiatry so, uh, or telemedicine connecting uh, to patients in a variety of ways. So we can do it visually with a video. We can do it auditory, like with a telephone call. We can do it with texting or emails or messaging through our electronic health record. And we also think, so there's the different ways of communicating. And then you can also think about whether it's synchronous or asynchronous. So we do these asynchronous communications all the time when we send emails. We send a query and then somebody at their leisure responds to it. Um, when we think of telepsychiatry these days, we're usually thinking about a synchronous in real time connection that uses video and audio um, between a clinician and a patient. There um, are also, have also been models of clinicians speaking to clinicians as part of telepsychiatry, for example, doing consultations um, or you know, providing information um, um, into rural areas um, from expert, expert uh, clinicians in other uh, parts of the world. Um, but what um, I've been most involved in has been this synchronous connection between our clinicians, our psychiatrists and our psychologists uh, directly with their patients via a video and auditor uh, auditory audio connection. Um, that's what's changed dramatically since March. 
uh, the number of visits that we've been able to do. So, so um, can you just give us a sense of the order of magnitude, the data, like how, how has telepsychiatry increased access to care mm. uh, in our clinic and, and perhaps, uh, you know, around the country? Um, well, I could tell you a little bit about the obstacles to our scaling it up before the quarantine and the public health emergency. But since we've been scaling up, we went from doing about 5% of our total volume via these virtual visits, um, maybe, and I would say perhaps it was about 20% of our clinicians who used virtual visits at all, um, to 97% of our visit volume being virtual. Um, and this is to decrease density at the hospital to protect people from having to um, leave their homes and put themselves at risk of infection. Um, and it's um, the, the number of visits that we've done has also increased. So we converted to this new modality and we're now doing over 6,000 visits a month at Mass General Hospital Psychiatry, which is about a 20% increase over what we had been doing with our in-person visits and 5% virtual visits before the public health emergency. So well, me, we're converted and we're doing more. So <laughs> let me ask it in a different way. Um, the Child and Adolescent Clinic has what, maybe what 18,000 visits a year? Yeah, about that. What was the cancellation or no-show rate? When I say no-show rate, I mean people who just miss their appointments or cancel their appointments before telepsychiatry, and yeah. what was it after telepsychiatry? Right, so before, we call them lost care opportunities now, actually, there's no shows, um, and before it had been in the range of 13 to 15% of all of our visits were just failed connections, people who forgot their appointments or didn't show up or had a competing demand, um, but our um, no-show visit ra uh, rates dropped by 20%. Um, and they are uh, more recently in the uh, hovering in very low percentage ranges. Uh, usually what we're seeing is not even so much no-shows. It's people who, because they can have the flexibility to do so, are asking on short order to change up. Like, oh, I really want to do some, you know, Zoom with a family member. Can I change my appointment with you, Dr. Wozniak? And I so I don't mind changing with them within the same day because I could fill my appointment time in with somebody else very quickly, or I could offer them another one um, very quickly as well, because I don't have to be sitting in a certain office in order to see them. So what has, uh, so no-shows have diminished. We're making contact with our patients, but we're also taking advantage of the flexibility that virtual visits offers so that people can have visits when it's actually very convenient and easy for them to do. Um, so we've kind of had two efficiencies. The fact that the overall volume has increased um, by a, also about 20%, 25% is an indicator too that, that there's a decreased barrier to connecting with mental health clinicians. You might say part of it is that more people are suffering and they're in need of mental health care. I think that's certainly true, but I think that it's actually easier for people to click on to their device and connect with a psychiatrist than it is to park their car at Mass General and walk into the suite of offices that has the big psychiatry sign over the door. I think that we've really decreased barriers, obstacles um, to seeking out psychiatric care. I mean, we, those of us who do work in mental health, we understand that mental health is just a, another medical problem. Um, but 
in general, you know, we can't deny the fact that people experience a feeling of stigma when they have to seek out mental health care. Um, now that they can do it in the privacy of their home so quickly with just a click of their computer, I mean, people are feeling more comfortable to make an appointment with a psychologist or a psychiatrist. It's a good thing. Those numbers are incredible um, in terms of the the increase in the number of patients that are being seen and the the, the decrease in the, the number of appointments that are missed. So as we get ready for these appointments, especially for children and adolescents, what can they expect and how can we help them prepare for an appointment? Yeah, uh, well, I think some of, uh, one of the things we discovered when we first did our very first visits back in 2014, it was interesting. We started in child psychiatry and we actually started with our um, autism patients. Um, and we had a, a rationale behind it was that we thought that the parents of the children who had autism would already be people who were a little bit more tech savvy because they use a lot of assisted communication devices already for their kids. Um, and um, in addition, we thought that the kids who had autism spectrum would enjoy the visits more themselves, it would be less stressful for them and less stressful for their parents. Um, so kids who have autism spectrum disorder, you know, they like their routine and um, to bring them to an appointment means changing their day, you know, plucking them out of their routine. For the parent, it means upending their, their own schedule for work or whatever else. It means doing a stressful drive into the city to a stressful parking lot, you know, walk through a stressful elevator to a stressful waiting room all the way up into my office. And by the time I'd see these poor kids, they were often kind of shell-shocked. What I was surprised to find with these kids who I saw over my first virtual visits was how much more engaged and connecting with me they were. They were relaxed. They were at home. It hadn't interrupted their day in any major way, except to walk from one room to another, perhaps, to do this visit with me. Um, and uh, they got to share so much of their life. They were on their turf, so they seemed a lot more comfortable. Um, so it was a great lesson for us. And the parents were over the moon. They were so happy that we were able to connect. I mean, think about this, the, uh, um, the stress of bringing a kid to a medical appointment like that, let alone your child who has autism features or, or symptoms. So, so um, it also allowed us to connect with people, have more appointments in short periods of time, short periods, short, short appointments more often, which is often what a lot of kids need who have short attention spans or who are titrating up on medications or having problems that are happening in real time, day to day, week to week. Um, so you couldn't realistically ask someone to drive into the hospital um, twice a week, you know, uh, or three times a week. But if you were doing televisits, you could connect with somebody that frequently if they needed it clinically. Um, so that was that that was all awesome. Um, what we told people to expect was that we wanted to make sure that you know their technology you have, has to be reasonable. They have to have a reasonable connection to the internet so it's not frustrating. It has to have a video and audio connection, which is of high enough quality. Um, so we would often have, uh, usually the routine is to have a test visit. Early in the early days, we had like a human being do the test visit with the patient. Now you can do one uh, kind of automatically through the electronic health record when you connect, you do testing your sound and testing your video. And um, what we tell people to expect is that the visits will be pretty efficient. So we ask them to bring with them their questions right away. It's great for clinicians uh, and for patients too, because, you know, it's, I liken it to the difference between like writing a formal letter and sending a text message. 
you send a text message, you just get right to the point. You ask the question, you get your answer. For these televisits, the connection happens quickly and you can um, right away just get into what's going on. What's, what's on your agenda today? How can I help you? What's your question? You know, you think about coming to the office and all of the other things that are going on. It's, there's a much more of a formal hello and how are you and let's sit down and put down your coat and put down your jacket. So what I usually prepare people for is the visit's probably going to be a lot briefer than what you expected um, or what you experienced when I saw you in the office. And, and if it's not long enough, we could always schedule another one like post haste right away because they're easy for me to fit into my schedule and to, and to schedule in the, in the near future. Um, so uh, that's one thing. The other thing that we tell people is that they need to be mindful of where they're meeting with us. So there's no really replacing the intimacy of being in an office with a closed door with one other person or two other people. Um, um, when you're in your home, you can, you can replicate that, um, but you need to be mindful that when you're talking, there may be people in the other room who could hear you um, and um, you might not want that. You know, a child might or parent might want um, more specific, more privacy. So they have to think ahead of time about where in their house or where in the, where in the rooms within the house or how they're going to do this so that they have the feeling of intimacy and privacy that they otherwise would have had coming into my office with me closing the door and giving them my attention. In exchange, I always let people know where I am, um, that I'm in an office that's private, that there's nobody else listening. Sometimes I have um, other, um, you know, in the old days, I would have like a, a trainees who would be with me and I might say, look, you have a trainee sitting here with me. Um, but it's, but otherwise it's just me. As a clinician, I always ask too, because I can't tell by just looking at the little square on the uh, Zoom, is there anybody else in the room with you? Um, is there anybody else listening to you while you're talking? Um, and it helps me know then whether the person may feel totally free to speak um, honestly and openly um, if, if there are other people who are like walking around. Not everybody has a big enough living space where they can have total privacy to talk to me. So that may be, that's one of the things that um, patients need to think about ahead of time and realizing what they might lose by coming all the way into the office. So um, that's terrific. But let's look at the darker side. Um, and that is, uh, what are some of the barriers that prevent um, someone from accessing virtual care? So some marginalized groups, like 16% of Boston doesn't have internet. Um, and, and so can you t talk a little bit about how disparities Mm -hmm. um, highlighted in particular by underserved communities, you know, like those who have economic or housing insecurities, un, you know, unemployment, poverty. Um, how do they fare? Um, and, mm -hmm. and what do we what do we do to help them have access to this incredible uh, service? Yeah, exactly. that's a very important question. I, I would I would say that our early expansion into this was marked by frustration for everybody. Um, no matter what kind of um, situation you had in terms of your internet or technology, your devices, there were a lot of failed and dropped connections and consistent video and audio. Um, and the hospital made a lot of concerted es um, efforts early on, the leadership to improve our virtual visit platform, which was great. It took a while to happen, um, but it, 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 made, um, it made the system just much more efficient and higher quality. However, as helpful as this was, 
virtual visits continue to pose a problem for people who just don't have access to adequate video equipment or good internet service and that private place to meet with their clinician. Um, for these patients, we've been able to be flexible and have audio only connections as an important option for care. And um, in, in that way, I think that sometimes um, it, it um, opens up opportunity for care in a way that never was possible before for many people or certainly more, more frequent care um, to have an audio only connection. Like, why wouldn't we have done this in the past? In fact, you might even wonder, why didn't we scale up virtual visits well before the public health emergency? So part of the reason, or a big, biggest part of the reason, I would say, is that insurance companies didn't consider them real visits. They wouldn't reimburse us for them. The only reason Mass General was able to start doing virtual visits in 2014 is because the hospital leadership invested in the, in the technology and in the procedure. Um, so that when I, as a clinician, did a visit, I wouldn't have to worry that the person's insurance wasn't going to pay for that visit. Um, so um, we used to have to bring people into the hospital literally because that was the only way that a visit could be reimbursed and that, the, that we could keep our psychiatry service alive. Because of the public health emergency, insurance companies are now required to reimburse for virtual visits. And that includes now audio only visits have also been reimbursed. We're all quite worried what's going to happen once um, the uh, public health emergency ends and um, uh, things may, you know, we're worried about which things are going to revert back, which are going to create, um, bring back the barriers or obstacles to us connecting with patients. The audio only option is one we're very worried about because that one really does differentially affect people who don't have access to um, good video equipment or a private place to, to connect with somebody with that video equipment. Um, hopefully the audio only option will remain or the hospital will, um, will uh, not penalize clinicians for connecting with their patients via audio only. Um, I think it's an important um, lesson that we've learned um, over this period. Another way in which the disparity had increased um, is that um, we've been increasingly used trying to use technology to gather information from our patients, for them to send in questionnaires and information before they visit with their clinician or fill out outcome measures after they visit with their clinician so we can track care. Um, and um, it's um, very difficult for um, individuals who are in socioeconomically disadvantaged situations to use those type of communication um, avenues with their clinicians. And we have much less data on individuals um, from more disadvantaged um, backgrounds and locations, unfortunately. How can this be solved? Uh, you know, we, we had had some ideas early on when we opened up virtual visits that there might be ways to FedEx or ship equipment to people um, in advance of a visit so that they'd have the equipment to do, uh, to do a visit. Um, maybe to use sort of more smartphone technology that didn't rely on internet type services, um, but could use more cell services um, might be a possibility. Um, and, um, you know, early in the, um, during this uh, pandemic, I know that a lot of our community mental health centers were trying to provide their patients with equipment so that they could communicate with their clinicians from home without having to run the, endure the risk of, uh, of infection, leaving their house to see someone. I think if there's anything that we've seen 
during this um, era that we're living in. And the pandemic certainly is a is key is that the disparity between the haves and the have-nots has dramatically increased. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully we can be part of the solution to that and not make this a problem. Early on, um, we talked about, or mentioned rather, that, that telepsychiatry is kind of like the house call of back in the day. <laughs> we, we're, we're actually in patients' living rooms and sitting at their tables. What, what are the pros and cons of seeing a patient actually in their home instead of an office? Um, for the provider and for the patient. Yeah. Well, there's pros and cons just to the whole way in which we see them, right? So first of all, a lot of us only see people from like the shoulders up. And so I found myself having to make sure I asked people, are you gaining weight? Are you losing weight? What's your nutritional status? Because I couldn't obviously see them when they walked in. Um, also, people who may have had any type of movement problems, we prescribe a lot of medications that might cause muscle stiffness, for example, or gait abnormalities. You have to realize I'm not going to, this is not spontaneously going to be something I can observe um, with, the, with this patient. Um, another problem has to do sometimes with eye contact. And so, you know, the way our computers are set up, the, camera, uh, the, the looking at the screen doesn't necessarily mean you're looking at the camera. So you might perceive that your patient's not making good eye contact with you. And in fact, they are. So some of these um, features of how we're connecting, we have to kind of keep in mind as we're doing our visual and kind of maybe nonverbal assessments of our patients. Um, however, for information loss, there's so much that's gained. And so um, one of the things that's been so great in child and adolescent psychiatry um, is, and even in adult psychiatry, is I get to meet other people in this person's family who otherwise wouldn't have come into the appointment. A lot of times only one parent would bring a patient to an appointment. Parents are dividing and conquering and doing, you know, doing all kinds of different, you know, taking a time off from work. Now I get to meet both parents, plus the grandparents, plus the siblings, plus the pets. So you get a whole sense of the person's uh, family and you get different perspectives on the patient that way too. In child psychiatry, I get to hear um, for the first time their um, father or grandmother might be giving me the, their view of how the child's been doing or their concerns about behaviors that they're seeing. Um, also get a sense of, you know, what kind of conditions, you know, I'll, I might tell my patient things like, you know, you have to uh, pick a private time to do your homework. And I'll get to see like, well, where do they have the opportunity to do this homework? They, they have maybe a very cramped and cluttered uh, bedroom that they're doing it in, or do they, are they doing it out in a public space where I see that it's very noisy and boisterous? Um, I know for my colleagues, uh, psychologist colleagues who do a lot of um, um, exposure type therapies for people with OCD, they get to, patients get to show them in their house, like the things that they're checking. Here's the lock and the door that I'm checking. And so something that they may have only heard about, they get to actually see, and then they can give some very direct advice to patients and directions in the, as part of their cognitive behavioral therapy um, that involves seeing them in their household. So, so I think that this, this up information gained is really um, quite huge. Uh, as you point out, Kadisha, making a house call and seeing where someone's actually living and who they're living with, uh, what their circumstances are, um, has been an amazing opportunity. From child and adolescent psychiatry, I don't know your experience, but it seems to me kids just, you know, love to show me stuff. And if I'm trying to make some type of new relationship with them, I get to, I ask them to show me their pets and I ask them to show me where they have their dinner and where they, they take me on a tour. They'll, 
introduced me to people. It's kind of a very um, cool opportunity for kids to show who they are. Yeah, I've met, I've met a lot of pets over the over the time, and, and it definitely <laughs> seems, especially for for kids that you're seeing new, a way that they are able to engage more comfortably um, in their own home, around their parents, and around things that are familiar. So definitely, I've seen that in the patients that I've seen over the over these past several months. Yeah, I think it's I think it's um, I think that it brings more positives than negatives, um, for sure, um, especially the opportunity to really, as a clinician, tailor the amount of time you need per visit. Sometimes you need a long visit, but sometimes you really just want a 10-minute check-in. And um, I've always felt so bad asking people to drive all the way into Boston for that 10-minute check-in. But um, we can now do 10-minute check-ins twice a week, and then we could do a longer one next month. Uh, you know, you can, you can really um, have much more of a personalized way of fashioning a treatment plan. Um, because of the way that we can visit with patients now. So um, let me ask you this. What, what advice would you give um, to parents and providers about how to make the most of their visits, um, especially when it comes to children and teens? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, um, you know, teenagers are pretty comfortable with communicating with people over technology. Um, but um, one thing I think that's important is that um, um, there's a lot of different distractions that exist over a virtual visit. So if I have a teenager in my office, I could see that the teenager's looking at their phone and doing text messages while I'm talking to them. When I'm with them over the computer, I can't always tell what they're also looking at or doing while I'm talking to them, whether I really have their full attention or not. Um, and so um, it's, it's um, a good idea uh, for parents to suggest to their teenagers and to their kids, look, you have a short time with your doctor. Let's turn off all of the other alerts on the computer because you can see emails and all kinds of other things popping up for people while they're connecting with you. Turn all of those things off so that you can really uh, make um, a, a focused use of the time. Um, and also, I would recommend to people um, that they have their agenda ready um, so that they know what it is that they need to ask for and what they want to accomplish during the appointment. The doctor is going to have their his or her agenda, ask a bunch of questions and need to get a certain amount of information. Um, but um, but it, in these briefer visits or short visits, make sure that your agenda is there at the forefront. And maybe even start out with and let the doctor know and say, before this appointment's over, I need to make sure I ask you some questions about side effects, the diagnosis, how long this medication needs to be there, um, you know, a pharmacy issue, so that it doesn't get lost. You know, it's not like all of a sudden the doctor's ready to sign off and your questions haven't been answered. Um, so I think that that's really, that's really important. Um, I think it's also um, important to um, think about privacy and to help children and teenagers understand about private matters and that usually when they're meeting with their psychiatrist, it's a time to talk about things that you wouldn't necessarily share with the general public or maybe even with other family members. And so um, making sure that there's that opportunity to have private moments to talk about private things is an important component of any psychiatry visit. And it becomes more challenging when you're doing them virtually. Um, so it's, um, um, important that 
parents help their children and their uh, teenagers have that opportunity and understand and start to learn um, the value of um, privately sharing important information. Um, hmm. Can you think of some other things <laughs> that we should tell parents and, and uh, kids and teenagers? I, I got to say, we sometimes do have to tell teenagers things like, you know, if you came into my office, you probably wouldn't be like eating your lunch at the same time. And you probably would have gotten out of your pajamas and put your clothes on. And so there is some decorum or some proper behavior, professional behavior that we expect um, to, um, to provide as clinicians, um, as well as to um, ask our patients to um, share in, you know, to take away these dis other distractions, uh, you know, eating or doing other multitasking um, during the appointment. It'll make the appointment more, more meaningful and more effective um, if, if the focus is on what is being done in the appointment. Yeah, I think it sounds like you've covered the, the, the highlights of what advice we would give to, to parents to make the most of an appointment. And, and there are a lot of benefits, as we've heard from you, for, from telepsychiatry. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone is going to say that a virtual visit replaces an in-person visit. But once we are done with COVID and once it's behind us, what do you see as the future for telepsychiatry? You know, what do you see mm -hmm. as, what will it look like? Will we be doing all telepsychiatry? Will there be a combination <laughs> of telepsychiatry and in person? And, and mm -hmm. will insurance pay for it? Like, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what doctors do or clinicians do is going to depend a little bit on what all the regulatory agencies do. And, and, um, and hopefully we won't lose a lot of the opportunities that we've gained during the public health emergency. So at this point, every insurance company reimburses for virtual visits. And in the state of Massachusetts, there's a law, net parity law now that it reimburses at the same rate as an in-person visit. So that's a big difference too. It's not just does it reimburse, but does it reimburse at the same rate? So you wouldn't, you don't wanna create a disincentive to do virtual visits for clinicians if it's an important part of the clinical care. Um, but I would say we're in, in for kind of a, a whole new era of providing um, mental health services in which we can now fold in and utilize um, high quality audio video connections as a way of um, being with our patients and marching through the milestones of our treatment plans, whatever whatever the treatment plan be, whether it be behavioral therapy or, or some type of um, psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy. Um, so it's, it's new. It's, it's, I think we have every reason to think that the information that we lose will be able to fill in with um, careful questionings and that the information that we gain can lead to better outcomes for our patients. Um, I guess the other thing I would say to families um, in, and patients is take advantage of the opportunity to schedule these appointments with your doctor. Um, it's, um, it's so much easier than ever to access a clinician um, through telepsychiatry and take advantage of that opportunity um, to focus on mental health care and self-care, um, especially during this time when everybody's experiencing a new sorts of unusual stresses. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's 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 it. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what the what happens legally. What could determine some of what we do may not be clinical decision. It could be like a regulatory thing. So, for example, 
um, if I'm prescribing a controlled substance like an ADHD medication. Um, right now, I'm able to do that with virtual visits. Um, before the public health emergency, I was required to see people in person at a certain rate while I was prescribing those medications. Um, what's going to happen post-pandemic? We don't know. Um, we can still um, call an audio connection a visit and document it and have reimbursement for it. Whether that's going to continue post-pandemic, we're still waiting to see. Um, we have difficulty when patients are out of state. So I have lots, you know, we have patients who live in different states who come to Mass General to see us. Right now, due to the public health emergency, I can connect with a patient who's located in Connecticut or New York or Rhode Island or anywhere else. Um, but um, after the public health emergency, that might be considered practicing without a license in Connecticut if my patient's in Connecticut. So um, we're hoping that all of the state regulatory agencies and licensing agencies will see the value in um, expanding uh, licensure in easy ways across state lines so that patients can be located anywhere when they're having their visits. The same thing for doctors. Um, you know, the uh, new rules are now seem to be becoming a bit more rigid about where doctors can be. It used to be, we used to be told that a doctor can be anywhere and do my, I could see my Massachusetts General Hospital Clinic from Omaha, Nebraska, if I was out there visiting relatives. But now it appears that it matters where the clinician's located too. So a lot of the regulations are starting to put some obstacles and restrictions on how we can do these virtual visits and where we need to be and where our patients need to be relative to where our employment is and where our licensure is. These are these boring legal things um, may end up altering um, the degree to which we can continue to do virtual visits with patients, um, but that's yet to be seen. Well, I think um, uh, this has been great. And, and I certainly hope that these legal and um, regulatory issues will be um, dealt with you know, post-COVID, because it, it seems like we have discovered a way to kind of make connections that are extraordinary and um, and, and help people, um, you know. We don't want to go backwards. Yeah, we don't want to go backwards. And, and you know, I mean, there's been, there's been there's precedent for this. I mean, if you work for the um, Indian Health Service, you can see people anywhere in any state of the country. I mean, so it's not as though there, mm -hmm. aren't, there aren't examples that allow for, for this kind of thing. Well, thank you so much, Janet. Um, it's been terrific, and we will follow up on that. Um, before we finish, um, we always ask, what, what's, 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 what's happened in the news this week <laughs> that strikes you? <laughs> or maybe we've talked about that already, but is there anything else in the news? Khadija, what about you? I don't think I've seen anything else in the news well, that's not true. I think the, the rise in COVID cases and the number of, of lives lost has been tremendous and continuing to climb. So those are the two big things that have been um, headed in the news this this um, this weekend. And it's just, just jarring for me that we're still, you know, losing people at this rate and people are getting ill at this rate and, and still, you know, underserved communities are, are hit harder than, than others. And, and, doesn't seem to be much, much different compared to March, unfortunately. 
Right. How about you, Janet? Well, I guess I will have a, a kind of a more hopeful take on this past week, which is I've also seen that the number of vaccines that have been given has dramatically risen. And I know at Mass General, they've given out maybe 30,000 or more vaccines already um, for the first one. And the people are getting their second round of vaccine. And it looks like we're going to be able to efficiently vaccinate a lot of people in the months to come. That's exciting. And, and looking at the silver lining again, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of take home messages about what we've learned through this COVID pandemic and how we can prepare for others in the future because they're likely to come. Uh, but hopefully we'll be better prepared. Um, and um, I, too, am grateful for, for, the, um, for the increased number in vaccines. So thanks a lot for everyone for listening. If you have any comments or questions, um, please uh, let us know. And we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. Thanks, Janet. Uh, it's been great having you here. Thank you. Uh, that's it for today. Thank you. So I'm fun to be Jean- here. Thank you. I'm Dean Morrison. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins.